Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast and part two of my conversation with Derek Shulman. Along with part one in our discussion about his career with General Giant, speaking with him really was an honor for me. And we could have talked for hours more, as it was just so interesting to hear his General Giant music career stories, followed by how he then, after retiring Giant, reached the pinnacle of the music industry food chain by becoming president of the Atco Warner label, followed by being president of indie label Powerhouse Roadrunner. Here's part two. After General Giant formally called it quits, I think the year was 1980, and you had just recorded your last album, Civilian, in L.A. So let's begin your trajectory as a music executive, where in the end, you actually reached the highest pinnacle of success, and that's being president of not only one, but two major record companies. Warner owned Atco and later Roadrunner, which was also a powerhouse indie label. Mm -hmm. So how did you segue into your first career role in the actual music biz itself. And what was that first actual job? Well, segueing, it, it was interesting because when we broke up, broke the band up, you know, it was it was not sort of like a, a transition that we all planned a year by year ahead and said, let's let's like slowly move out of this into something else. It was really, you know, for the most part, I, I would think actually me and Carrie we're married, we had families. Um, and, and and honestly, I think we had decided before the last tour of the USA that, uh, or North America, should I say, that um, it was enough. And we, 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 we'd had enough of touring. And also the, uh, what we didn't want to become was a parody of what we were 10 years prior to us beginning. Uh, and the music business had changed. Uh, the radio uh, and all the other elements of marketing the band had changed and honestly we we felt that the juices weren't were running dry and if we were to continue we would have to change alongside the other so-called prog bands and become a singles band and and in fact um we try, i guess we tried to a certain degree with incredible failure <laughs> so uh we, we just said no that's it let's 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 stop after this tour I, I'm done, and and, and um, I think uh, you know Ray to a certain degree is done. Certainly, Kerry was. You have to remember before before Gentle Giant, I was in another band, and um, so you know we I've been on the road for 17 years or whatever it was, and and with a family and everything else, uh, it was time, and, and uh, that was it. So, were was somebody that you knew in the business? Uh responsible then for hiring you to get into the business was that a connection that you that you made uh, correct me if i'm wrong did you jump into a and r first or was it promo or what was that first well actually i, I was living in la and uh, um believe it or not moved to dallas of all places oh. for uh, a little while because my wife was originally from dallas okay um and we we had our place in london then we went to la to make the album the civilian uh, album for, for six weeks and that was, you know, that was our, my, our plan. The plan to live here in the North America and USA was never on the radar. However, after the album was made, um, we went back to London. But then we thought, well, let's go back to L.A. and and see how it works. And uh, we stayed here. But yes, um, 
honestly, I didn't. I didn't really have a plan. I mean, we thought, okay, and I got offered a couple of production uh, gigs and a couple of other things to work with other bands. And I, you know, there was a time for about a year or so that. You know, we I, I didn't quite know where I was going. Okay, so you didn't have a preconceived plan that oh, I'm gonna I would love to work at uh, a major label. Uh, it sort of dropped in your lap, sort of. Well, yeah, well, effectively, yes, <laughs> because <laughs> uh, because uh, honestly, there was thankfully, you know, I had enough money to not to have to scramble and, and dig ditches. Say. But you know, that was going to run out, and so um, a friend of mine who was originally at Chrysalis Records, when, who, who we were assigned to in the UK, was working at Polygram. Uh, he was the head of International. And he, he, he called me out of the blue, and, and a guy called Dan Young. And he said, uh, there's a new uh, division uh, happening at this company, which is a company from uh, at Polygram Records. And it was a combination of Philips and uh, phon- a phonogram, a German and Dutch company, is getting together mm-hmm. um, and they're putting a rock department together. What do you think about being part of that? Uh, and I thought, are you kidding? I mean, I, I, you're, the, you're, you're the enemy. You're the Darth Vader of the world. I, I was just going to go there and say you, you'd had uh, adversarial um, situations, I'm sure, with labels, and now you're, they're offering you to be on the other side. Well, so, but you know what? It was it was uh, it was it was an interesting proposition. Sure. And I, like, what what do you think? And honestly, there was nothing else on the radar. So I figured, what the hell? Let's give it a shot. So I upped and, and went up, went out to uh, New York, met with the head of the department, and um, I was hired because. And was that pro- promotion or A No, it, initially it was about promotion because. Um, the uh, head of the department, Jerry Jaffe, you know, th- thankfully, said, well, you, you know, these two very well-known um, radio uh, advisors slash consultants, because they're fans of your band, Right. let's bring you in and you could, you could work our stuff and, and you can get to them, whereas I can. It was uh, Lee Abrams and, and Jeff Pollock. So I was hired on the basis of me knowing a couple of people that he couldn't get to. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be still digging or perhaps digging ditches and uh, gone to Peoria or whatever. <laughs> uh, but I, I decided to say, what the hell? Give it a shot and see what happens. Yeah. Can you amplify how you managed to then slide into that corporate culture of a major label? And how long were you in promotion before you they went, oh, yeah. Um, Perhaps you have some uh, some good ears too from being a musician. Uh, maybe you should uh, <laughs> come into A and R. Or how did that happen? Well, it happened completely organically, actually, and 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 obviously, whilst you know being part of a promotion team, which was honestly well. I'll, I'll, what I'll what I'll say is, I do remember the first day I, I arrived at mm-hmm. the company and being shown my little office, you know, the tiniest office on the end. Of course. And, and walking through and, and, and speaking to all the people involved, I realized actually that the business I was in was not the music business. It was mm. really the business of music. And and my at the end of that day, I remember my heart dropping from there to the bottom of my feet, thinking, I get get the hell out of this. I mean, maybe tomorrow or the next day, but I realized that 
okay, I understand what these people are, and some of them like music, some of them, some of them like the park, some of them like the <laughs> the other side of what is 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 part of a, being a, an executive during that period of time, which is the uh, the, the the whole uh, decadent aspect of being a record executive, which I was never part of as a band, and, and but I realized that was why they were there. And I said, well, let me give it a shot. So I joined the company, but at the same time, having been in the band, I knew a lot of musicians and I, you know, and, and, and managers. While I was in the first year, there's a couple of bands who, who I knew because they were friends of mine. One especially um, is Uriah Heap. The manager, Jerry Braun, who was our manager back in the day, Simon Dupree and the original Gentle Giant, came to me because he was still the manager of uh, Uriah Heap and said, look, we've got this album, Abominog, and we're not sure what to do with it because labels are not wanting it. And I listened to a couple of songs and I said, you know what, I think it could, this could work here. So I went to this to, to Jerry, who's the head of the role department. Said, you know, I think there's a couple of songs which could you know, really work. And we signed it, and in fact, it became one of their best sellers. Actually, <laughs> great start for you there. Yeah. And so I, I basically segged within a year or or less into A and R. You know, sat in a slightly bigger office. And um, well, what's interesting about about A and R is you really there is no music school for it, or you can't. They can't even send you away somewhere to train for it. You've basically got to have that sort of intuition or. The fact that you were in a band, a successful band for 10 years, gave you a leg up in that department where you probably could recognize what was at least uh, worthy of looking at to sign, uh, so putting you ahead of, of, of many others already. And then probably you went on a learning curve, I'm, I'm sure, of some kind. Well, the learning curve was actually sitting in the offices where the bands uh, put their faith in to the executives working their records. And I realized having done that first day and thinking, oh, shit, what have I got myself into? Realizing that the business wasn't about how good you were or how 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 good the records were or how it was about stroking ego, stroking this and stroking that and a lot of other, a lot of other uh, bits and pieces that if you didn't have a champion in that company, you weren't going to get a shot. And the people who ran the the marketing slash promotion departments were the kings, you know. So you, I realized that, and saw the best managers were the ones that worked these people and the other guys. Every every office, what I realized effectively was every office was a record division on its own. So the best managers worked individual offices to make sure that their records were prioritized, other than other than being a great record. So that was a big learning curve for me. I, I also had some experience at that time. I was given a production deal with uh, Bob Buziak at RCA in the 80s. And I still remember this one meeting where Bob walked me into the office and he said, so, Tom, why don't you come over here and look at my ledger? Which I thought was, you know, pretty privileged to be able to do that. So he goes down the list. Mm, yeah, I don't like this fucking guy here. This, this guy's an asshole. The manager you literally would put a line through it. 
this guy's a fucking dick, blah, blah, blah. I wouldn't want to spend any time with this guy either. It was almost down to, you know, personal, like if somebody was going to rub you the wrong way and just be a complete asshole every single day, 24 hours a day, he would just take them right off the board and go, you know, I, I can't deal with this. So that was a learning lesson for me personally. Yeah, well, that, again, firsthand. I mean, I, I saw that and 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 realized, in fact, effectively, that uh, you know, gentle giant. We, we we had no clue that that was the way that worked. Otherwise, I mean, had I had I known or even thought about it, then you know, maybe I or management or or because I we took that's part of it. I took all the management with Ray uh, half through you know, the, the band's career. I would have been you know in New York you know. You know, sucking up to every damn person in the company, which I didn't do, of course, but I learned. Those personal relationships can never be beat. Uh, once you're there and people like you, like one thing I had going for me with Bob is we just got along great for some reason. We just were able to, he, he recognized talent as me as a producer and finding talent, developing it. And he was just so... Uh, appreciative because I wasn't uh, a hard ass or I wasn't pushing him. I wasn't, you know, I was always respectful. And I think that it, was just, it just worked. We, we just got along really well. And I think that that's one thing that, again, I learned later on in life, again, with other situations that if you're a complete asshole and you want too much or you're, you're a prick, chances are people aren't going to well deal with you because there's tons of other people out there that have great bands and are great managers are going to go there and, and I would do the same. And I've done the same in my small world. I won't deal with somebody who's an asshole. Well, unless, unless you're... Well, unless it's unusual now. I mean, if John Bon Jovi came out of the blue tomorrow and said, Tom, work with me and he'd call me an asshole first, I'd say, okay, call me whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> unless you've got the biggest band in the world, you can have it. Exactly. But you know what I mean. You know what I'm getting at. Those personal relationships are what I'm getting at. They last forever. And I'm sure you have ones right now that you could probably mention where you've been friends with people forever because they you've been nice to them and vice versa. Right. No, absolutely. So, you know, absolutely. So it does, it did come down to personal relationships and how they, how you were respected and how you were treated. But what I, what I wanted and what I felt was that um, knowing how it worked and, and where it worked, by the way, Bob is one of the good ones, by the way. For sure. You know, we always got along really well, no matter where we were, where we, where we met, that I could bring now having been in the band and, and just two bands and, and, and gone through what I had um, and now learned how it really worked uh, could help artists that would ordinarily uh, flounder, either get their management or certainly be part of uh, understanding what it was and how, what it took mm -hmm. to break an album. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. But, you know, of course, you have, you know, hits and, and stiffs, but you never mention the stiffs. Of course. <laughs> but yeah, no, I was lucky in the fact that uh, I had I had this grounding, I had a long, long grounding as a musician. So any musician that would come to me and 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 uh, be in a band could never say to me, "Well, you don't know what it's like," because believe me, I've slept on floors and and I'm in vans, you know. So I've and I've slept in the best hotels. I've done, you know, I've. I've there wasn't anything I hadn't done as a musician. That's a great point, Derek. You've been there and done that. You know what it's like um, to be struggling. And, you know, you're right. Uh, where are we getting our money to, to pay for the van tonight? <laughs> who's calling their, Who's calling up their friend or whatever? Right. You know, I, I, yeah, that experience is invaluable. So you ended up signing some humongously huge acts. So 
how long was it before you ended up uh, being able to sign Bon Jovi? Like, was that a little bit further into the career or how did that all come up? Because that, I mean, that's astounding right there. Well, it was, it was literally as I was, you know, checking into that, that role, um, I heard this track on the radio called Runaway. Radio going in those days, in those days, as you remember, yes. and that was that was one of the only forms of marketing. Uh, and I heard it. I said, "Wow, this is this is this is a." It was on a, a radio station, APP. It was a very short period of time. Within a week, our business affairs guy said, "There's an attorney in Philadelphia that would like to bring you a, a, a demo by this kid called John Maggiove." He came up to the the office and, I, and he played me a song "Runaway," which was on the radio, and three other tracks, which were pretty pretty good. I, I said, ah, "Who is who is this kid?" Anyway, he was a kid from New Jersey in Sayreville. I'd love to talk to him and meet him, which he put together. Uh, and um, John was putting together what became Bon Jovi, and um, I sat down with him just one on one. You know, first of all, this "Runaway" was was a regional hit. I mean, that was, it was certainly getting a lot of attention. And I said, I asked him about the track and he recorded it at his second cousin's. Uh, Tony Bon Jovi, who, yes, I, I know I work with him as well. At the power station. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, but I, I, I sat down with him and said, so what is it you want to do? That was really kind of almost the first question I asked him. And he said to me, I want to be bigger than Elvis. <laughs> okay. Well, that's cocky, but you got to have a certain amount of that. Yeah. And generally, you'd be you know, spitting out your sandwich, you're laughing at him. But he was looking at me so intently and, and, and so much drive, I didn't swallow my sandwich and, and, and choke on it. <laughs> right. I said, well, how, how and what? He said, I want to be bigger than Elvis, and I'm going to do it. That's incredible. That drive and ambition was almost like something that you, you can't capture. No. And and as as this track was saying, so I said, what are you going to do? And they put, he was putting uh, Richie Sambor in the band as, instead of, you know, guitars. So I said, I'd like to see a couple of showcases of when you put the band together. So within a couple of weeks, uh, I, I saw one and at the uh, Copacabana, I think it was in New York at that time. And they were, they were good, but they weren't great. I mean, it was a, you know, a new band. And then yeah. I said, look, you know, can you put a showcase on for my bosses, if you like? And we did a showcase at SIR, or they did, should I say. Um, and, and honestly, you know, a couple of, there was about five or six people in the department. And, you know, the, a couple of people were not impressed. But I said, look, I know this. I know that John is, is going to, I just know it. 
Well, you saw, you also saw, I'm sure, star power, like just him on stage, the presence, and when he walks in the room. I, you know, I haven't met him before, but I'm sure that 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 is the case. That you you sniffed that out when he walked into the office. Let me put it this way: when he walked into the office, every girl's head would turn. I mean, literally, <laughs> that's key. Hundred <laughs> percent, of course. I mean, look, look I, mean, I can't deny that. I mean, so, but I, I wasn't quite sure whether he wanted to be Rex Smith or Van. Okay. Um, certainly, uh, that would, and that was something that I had to work on with him and the band, and ultimately with Doc McGee, who I introduced him to. Yes. Um, anyway, so the bottom line is, he put his band together. Uh, a couple of people were not impressed, but I said I I, I continue to work, to work for him, and we signed one. Well, John Bon Jovi actually he he wanted to be signed on his own, and 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 the band separately. Anyway, so that was my first signing within three months of being an A&R guy. Wow. Uh, <laughs> what a start that is. And I'm going to just tell you a quick little story as we move along here with Bon Jovi. I was working with Bob Rock um, many years ago, actually, with, with um, a Canadian band. And he took me into the vault one day at Little Mountain. Right. And uh, I just said, what have you been working on recently? He said, oh, I just finished working with this guy called John Bon Jovi. And I go, and he goes, yeah. You see that tape on the shelf there? That's an album called Slippery When Wet. Mm -hmm. And he go, and I and I said, so what do you think of it? He said, I think it's going to do pretty pretty good for me. I think I think it might even go platinum. Oh. <laughs> and I looked at it. I don't. I don't. I'm never going to forget looking at that tape and the expression when he told me, like he he really believed in it. But I mean, you know, of course, the rest is history. And I mean, that just blew him right up. So of course, this is fast forwarding. But right. you know, again, congratulations to you for being there early and and seeing that potential. Well, yeah, I also, you know, there's so many stories from that of course. beginning. Um, and, and, and really, uh, he was, um, ha his most important uh, um, handler, if you like, were his mom and dad. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. And John, actually, well, John insisted that I meet his mother and father. That's nice. In Seville, in, in, and his mom took me aside when I, we worked out of the old, and just, said look to me i mean again I, I just me and said look at will you please look after him you know after the third album first album did very well second album did fine but certainly slippery was there's certain times in your life even as a musician where you know it's going to happen Stars were completely aligned. Yes, I would agree. I'm glad he was that tight with his family because I think that's also impressive for you to see somebody's other side that, you know, basically he's a good kid. Yeah, well, that, that, Com coming from a good family and stuff like that, you know, I guess that helps. It does, actually, because uh, 
for the most part, most of the, yeah, it, it really does. I mean, I've had different kinds of experiences, obviously, with different <laughs> kinds of bands. And, and of course, and, and, and my own band as well. But um, certainly, it's, it's nice to have someone or, or know the people that you're dealing with, not just the girlfriends or, or, or anything. I mean, for instance, okay, during that period of time when Bon Jovi blew up, I signed Cinderella. Great band, and he's got it. He's got that great sandpaper voice. Yeah, ooze is rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, so anyway, the, the, we have. I had a great time with most of the bands I, I dealt with. Yeah, and they were very successful too. They went double platinum, or at least they they did big numbers too. Oh yeah, like three or four times platinum the first album. I had uh, you know I would sign the top five albums uh, you know at the same time, which is. Uh, Look, I was king shit for a while. <laughs> you get to become king shit and you become just shit. Well, th this must be your segue into how you became president of ATCO. Is that a good segue for you? Uh, because you were at the top of the you were in the top of the mountain at that point. Yeah, I had, I had the kingdom coming in, in the top five and Bon Jovi and Cinderella and all the other stuff that I was doing. My contract was coming up, and um, they wanted me to stay, and I offered me to run some. And I figured, you know what? Let me try. Let me run a company. You know, and then in retrospect, I said, "Be careful what what you wish for." Yeah. <laughs> but however, it was a fantastic experience to be off. I mean, I was wine and dine, and and the stories that I have being wine and dine, you name it, in this biz, you know, um, was what you'll see in my book. Uh, <laughs> oh, I want to read the book. Is it out? <laughs> it's being written now, as we speak. Oh, I, I will be running to the store for that one. Uh, but uh, certainly, um, Steve Ross, who was running uh, Warner Music, um, was the one that said, look, we really want you here, and we'll give you a joint venture. Uh, okay. This, wow. Which is you know, <laughs> unheard of at the time. I mean, like David Geffen was the only one in that, in that group that had that. And I was able to um, maneuver uh, the best people I thought out of Polygram and, and hire some really good people. And uh, for six or seven years, I ran and was CEO of Atco Records. Well, well, Derek, that, that I mean, basically, you've reached the top of the food chain in the music business. So, I mean, uh, very few people can can say they've reached the top of the of the music chain. You you came from being, you know. A struggling musician, you toured the world. You almost, you know, almost made General Giant a household name. And as a matter of fact, you you have because forty years later, everybody's still talking about the band. And now you've become the top executive in the world, almost. Well, yeah, yeah, but that's incredible. It, yes, and well, actually, it, yes and no, because you know, there's this, there's a certain part of you that you're cut out for, and and ultimately, when Warner Music, which I, I was part of, became Time Warner. It, the corporate aspect of the thing came into it. So sitting around a table in a suit, looking at 
two years ahead and saying band X is going to sell 200,000. Band Y is going to sell a million. Uh, there was a point in that period of time when I started looking in the mirror, and, and that, this honestly is a true, true fact, and, and looked at myself and didn't recognize myself. What, I, I was saying band X. Who's band X? Band Y. And this is what you have to do to get budgets. What about the music? That, that's all my inner self was saying to me. What about music? What, where, what happened to the music? And uh, uh, just a little sidebar story. I remember sitting with my general manager, uh, and he had the radio on, and I said, it was a, a really you know, song. And I said, that's, that's a good song. I, I've heard it before. He, said, he looked at me like I was, I was kidding. Uh, it was by a group called Sweet Sensation, a pop song. Um, and, it was, um, and he said, that's our group. That's number one. <laughs> <laughs> and so that these kind of things are turning points where you say, okay, I've got to, this is something I either have got to come to terms with or stop. Okay. And effectively, I, I just thought this isn't for me, but nevertheless, I continued. Okay. So, so does that basically mean you turned into a bean counter yourself and you never thought you'd see yourself doing that is looking at a screen and literally going, Oh, I, I'm not even sure I know this band. And, and what, 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 yeah, what, and then you're going down the list, and music became almost a. a Let me give you a, 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 the analogy of exactly what that was when I first went in there. I mean, I was you know, all piss and vinegar and all the other stuff, you know, and had a, you know, a couple of bands that I signed straight away and back on Enough's Enough, being hands on. Uh, and then, of course, well, there was a lot of stuff that I, I did in the first two or three years I'm, I'm very proud of, actually. Theater for sure is uh, was was huge. Pantera, you know, signing them. Pantera, ma massive uh, signings, yeah. ACDC, I brought them back with Bob Rock and Bruce Fairburn, of course. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I remember sitting there and you know, with the, and Doug Morris, who was running at Atlantic at the time. You know, I think I think he thought saw me as some kind of threat, which I never was. And he said to me, and this is a story which I've recounted in the book, you know, what's your favorite uh, band and what are you working on right now? And I said, we've got to sign this band enough and off. They've got a new, great new record. And I think it could be a very big hit. It, it didn't, it became a, a, a sizable hit, but it, it was not a big hit. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, I've heard of it. They're, they're supposed to be very good. And I said, so Doug, what, what have you got? And of course, Atlantic Records have everything. And he, what he did was he brought out the sales sheet and put his arm 
over the the artist and went down with his finger and said, that's my favorite. And it was not based on the band. It was based on numbers, the sales. And I thought, oh, shit. This is really this is where the, where the corporate part comes into play. It's not about who it is. It's what sells, what's what what ships, et cetera, et cetera. This is back before the internet, before you know streaming, mm-hmm. before any of that. You know about CDs at that point, um, and that was a big. That was when again, I got certain periods of time with so many highs, but that that's when the low hit. When when you really okay, this is where, what it's about. So again, I had to learn and relearn what being an executive at the very top had to be. And and some of it was ugly, some of it wasn't. But I realized that during, you know, the period of time where, where it was not really me. And I was in Russia putting on the biggest show ever with uh, Pantera, Metallica, ACDC, when I got word that they wanted me to be a co CEO with um, a per- Sylvia Rhone, who was at Electra. Yes, and I, I, um, I, I came back from Russia, and um, I said, "No, I don't want to do that." And to cut a long story short, there was a period of time when, you know, I was really kind of dis- disillusioned by being in the position I was. Okay, because I realized that what my my where where I where I was, which is a musician, was disappearing. And I was turning into a bean counter. And that's, God knows, that something that was something, a complete anathema to my very soul. I understand totally. Is that um, primarily the reason why you you went um, to Roadrunner, what was, uh, which was owned independently by Case Wessels, who I've met a few times? And, and, and you felt like that would be more of a a musical home for you where, where music still meant something and, and was looked at seriously as the, the prime reason we're doing this, not, you know, even though we have to be successful, it's not about, can we be even more successful, which seems like the, the, the climate you just left where even though you were incredibly successful, they wanted, they were greedy. They wanted even more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Effectively. Yes. I mean, uh, case, uh, um, approached me and said, would you, what do you think about, you know, making the Roadrunner a, a, a big label. And I said, okay, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's a nice challenge. Uh, but it was a challenge, actually, because he, he he wanted to, but I don't think he understood quite some of the things you had to do. And I, that again, having been at Polygram and then uh, Warner at ADCO, I learned various things about where you have to be and you have to be focused. And, and he, at some point, um, tried to make the company bigger by signing hip hop artists and, and trying to sign alternative artists. Meanwhile, the people in the company, they all had, you know, inked and, and, and piercings and this, that, and the other. Yeah. And they, they had a couple of people there. Monty Connor is one who was a great A&R guy. Absolutely. I remember him. Yeah. Monty's, you know, and understood what metal and rock and, and everything was. And I didn't think he quite understood that he was, he had a brand. And I looked at, I said, Case, you 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 know, you realize what you've got people here working this hip hop Atlanta stuff, and there's not one black face in here. I mean, you can't do it like this. Either you you cut the wheat from the chaff, or or it doesn't work. And I had to I had to do that first, which and focus on what the company was doing best, which is basically hard rock and metal. And in fact, that I I came in. I was I, I was consulting it as a president 
first for a year, making getting rid of of, of things that were losing money, uh, and with uh, and then saying, okay, I'll come in now and and, and company. So that's what I did. Okay, because you had massive success there with Slipknot and Nickelback. So yeah. uh, were those your signings? Yeah. Well, yeah. Slipknot was. Uh, well, that was signed. Well, that was signed by by Monty, but certainly greenlighted by me. I said, "This is, this is going to be massive." You have to spend on one or two things as opposed to a big corporation. Right. We went for it with Slipknot. I mean, before that, there was Coal Chamber with Loco and and, uh, and that's what I saw on Fear Factory. But this, when, when Slipknot was uh, was there, I said, absolutely, this is the company's priority. Let's do it. Yeah. And having had that success, I brought in a real promotion head, radio promotion, because again, radio was um, important in those days. And... Um, Realized that we, having been become a kind of a powerhouse in the rock music, we had to kind of slip into the mainstream rock uh, area. Right, and that's when Nickelback. Yeah. Again, you, you know, when you look at the list of the bands that you've been associated with, I'd like to make a noteworthy worthy comment here. At this point in your career, it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to say you kind of had a Midas touch going on here with, uh, I think you're well over 100 million albums sold with with acts that you signed. You've got to be somewhere north of that, well, which is a staggering figure. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm happy that these bands have had success and I'm happy I was able to make a living being involved in, in in their you know their careers and my own as well you know so and but again I just I say in the middle of this sitting here at my age which you you know what it is ultimately it's about music and being a musician and the music you made it's not about pushing beans and 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 looking at sell sheets and everything else it's about what it is and what it what it means to you creatively and if you don't have that you have nothing. I'm going to just ask you one last question about your uh, executive career, just because I'm curious, because I think I know what the answer is. But did you did you ever sign an act where you didn't have the entire company or key people behind you, but you had the power to do it anyways? Was that uh, was that uh, Bon Jovi then? Because you said you had some people that weren't weren't believers. Not convinced. Yeah, a lot. I mean, uh, um, so that that did happen sometimes. Yeah. Let me just say this. I, I don't think. Either as an A&R man or running a company, I've been involved in signing a band where there is um, other companies, you know, throwing money at them to get them. I, I wouldn't do that. I would never. No one was interested in Bon Jovi. No one was interested in Cinderella. No one was interested in Pantera. You know, they couldn't get a record deal. Um, <laughs> no, Nickel. Well, Nickelback. They couldn't get a record deal in Canada. No, actually, that's true. Being a Canadian, that's true. So what you're saying is this was actually quite common as you went on your gut instinct most of the time. And you had a few followers, but never the whole company behind you going, oh, wow, we all hear this. No, not really. I know uh, there's there's a lot, you know, there's it's, today it was very different. But no, I think I had to use my instincts 
both you know emotionally, physically, and 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 musically, to understand where a piece of a piece of coal can become a diamond, either within a period of time or immediately. Mm-hmm. So you know, there, some will self destruct and blow blow up into a, a, a dark hole, like Kingdom Come or 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 you know, um, enough's enough because of whatever they either mouths or drugs or God knows what else. We, we know there's a million things could go wrong. <laughs> of course. Absolutely. So you, you learn. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Okay. That's great. I, I'm glad you answered that. That was, uh, that was really interesting to hear that. If it's okay, I would like to ask you a question or two about the actual music biz right now the way things are sitting would you mind if i asked you a couple of questions oh i'm i'm, I'm you know as long as they're uh, okay well, <laughs> no they're not hard they're just they're, they're just i'm good i'm get you, I, i'd love to get your opinion on on just because i have artists asking me all the time now tom how do i get rolling how do i get get attention so effectively uh look you know when i first started playing music on stage and 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 uh you know, being in a group as Simon Dupree and the Big Sound, I put my little group together at school and we played little schools and, and youth clubs um, and we got better. I, mean, I could play three or four chords as opposed to one or two. And we continued and we continued and got a little following in the next town and we got a little following. It, it was a different era, of course. And ultimately we got a record deal and the record deal at that point at EMI was uh, one single and you how to get the record deal was where you had to play in front of a bunch of uh, the executives at the studio. We're talking about George Martin, who was there. And I'll just, that's a story, which is a real story where you played in front of the, uh, the engineers and, and the, uh, the producers. And we did our full set on stage at the EMI Abbey Road studios. And they, they ticked the box and said, okay, we'll give you a record deal. The record deal was one single. But we had worked really hard for like two years on the road to become, you know, fairly proficient and had a pretty good following. Uh, so we were able to get a record deal. First record deal you know, was the top 40, but didn't break through. Uh, basically, the bottom line is you have to be unique. You have to you have to work your ass off. And the pieces of the puzzle, whereas it used to be 10 pieces, are a thousand pieces, so you have to be aware of every single element that are that that will grab your audience. It's not just Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or whatever. It's you playing live ultimately and being great live, so that the word of mouth on those uh, platforms is a, is a reality, not just a cyber uh, uh, reality. So that when people come to see you. They 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 can talk about it and say, "Wow, I've just seen the best you know live thing, or just heard the best live thing that I've heard in a long time." That's ha- that doesn't happen very much anymore. It's unfortunately the 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 uh, what's happened in the last twenty years is people want fame immediately. Why I brought up uh, if you're not famous in 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 like ten or or twenty minutes on TikTok or wherever YouTube then, you know, you're not going to be famous. It took us two to three years, believe it or not, even when I was at school and playing. We're talking about every night, even even two or three gigs a night 
to even get a record deal to play one single. And that was, you know, back in the day. That's that's how we became fairly proficient in what we did. Uh, so it, it, and it took a long time, a couple of years, to get that hit, to get, drive us forward. And, that, and those were the days when the jigsaw puzzle was 10 pieces. Now it's a thousand, so you have to do that first. Make sure you have that. And be unique as well. Because if you're a follower, that will never happen for you. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. Yeah, the, the word unique definitely has to be up there first, probably. Yeah, it has to, be, has to come from inside as opposed to somewhere else. No, I'm, I'm happy you're saying that. So you're basically saying the same thing... Um, kind of that I was feeling when I tell, you know, artists that come to me is that there's no substitute for paying your dues, but you also have to become great while you're paying dues. You can't just be normal. We'll say, as you just said, the word unique is, is key. Normal doesn't mean anything these days. You have to somehow stick out of the crowd. Yeah. Uh, I was going to use a, a band as a comparison for you that I've been following in the rock world, which is Rival Sons, which uh, opened for Black Sabbath, I don't know, five years ago or so, and they're still plugging away, but they're finally making headway. So I kind of like to use that as a sort of blueprint, we'll say. They've just been playing and playing and playing. They're really, really great, I think, live anyway. They're a great band. They are really very, very good. Yeah, I, I enjoy them a lot, and I think they're, 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 they're on the verge of finally happening, so maybe that's a great blueprint that i should tell artists that there's no easy way out they've just been slugging it away yeah year after year and, and hopefully you know there'll be an audience that will uh embrace a band like that when when not not if when these other bands who are now the headliners uh they're not no, no longer able to um play or are there there that's a great point too you're right who's coming up to replace some of those bands you're right it has to be bands like rival sons agreed this has been a, a huge honor for me derek uh to have the chance to go deep with you on a lot of subjects um again my accolades i'm running out of words to to be you know to be thrown at your way because uh like i said you are you are the one guy in the des deserted island that i would uh, hang out with at least on a musical level i don't know you that well personally yet but you seem like a really nice guy <laughs> and we always we did have some some nice uh, chats on the phone years ago so again big big thanks for coming on the talk music podcast i really enjoyed it and uh, all the best to you in your future endeavors and i hope to maybe bump into you in person at some point who knows where life where life goes okay we'll see you Tom. thank you so much my pleasure bye-bye bye-bye